0: to the Sermons Podcast of Christ Bible Church in St. Paul, Minnesota. I'm Pastor Levi Secord, and I'd like to thank you for listening. Christ Bible Church exists to bring all of Christ into all of life, and in doing so, we glorify God. This podcast series is not meant to be a replacement for the local church. It is not meant to replace your regular gathering with Christ's people across Christ's earth. And so we encourage you to use these sermons to bring glory to God, to bring all of Christ into all of life, And to strengthen and encourage one another in his name. With all of that in mind, let us turn our hearts and our minds now to the preaching of God's word, and in it may we see and glorify and emulate our Savior. All right, guys, we're going to go ahead and begin. Um, I'll open us with a word of prayer, and uh, then we will. We will hop on in. There's stuff over there. If you want any of it, you can have it. If not, cool. All right, let's pray. Uh, Lord God, we thank you for bringing us together this evening. We ask that you would bless our study as we look at how you work in the life of your people to transform them into the image of your Son. And so, Lord, we ask that you would give us soft hearts and that you would also give us eyes to see your truth. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So I'd like to thank you guys for coming. I know uh, on the the card uh, I had said we'll do um, about half the time will be lecture and half the time will be discussion. Well, not tonight. Tonight is going to be mostly lecture. Uh, you'll note that you you have a page in this booklet, the second page, that kind of lays out a reading schedule. So I didn't really promote the book a whole lot uh, during Sundays before this because I had always planned that this lesson was going to be a little bit different. It's going to be more establishing a foundation. And then we're going to uh, discuss these chapters in the following gatherings. So if you want to read, I would encourage you to do so. Uh, You can also go on Amazon and get an audiobook if you want to listen to it during your commute. Uh, You can do that as well. I like to listen to books on time and a half speed. And then my, kids, my kids always go, why are they talking so fast? I'm like, because if I turn it down after listening at time and a half to one speed, it sounds like they just had a stroke. And they talk really slow. And so, it's, um, it's, uh, there are a lot of resources out there. If you don't have time to read it, I, I wouldn't say don't come to the class. I'm going to be reviewing uh, the content anyways. So we'll, we'll, we'll be covering it as we go. But before we start a study on the, the practical or a guide to practical uh, sanctification, I think we need to answer the question first what is salvation? And lay this groundwork down. Uh, Ardell can tell you this, um, I'll tell you this as well. Uh, understanding sanctification, which, if you don't know what that is, just hold on, we'll get to it, and how that relates to the rest of the process of salvation and how God saves his people. Um, is fraught with disagreement. People would uh, look at some of the stuff that Lane and Tripp talk about here, what I'll talk about, what Hardell's talked about elsewhere, and call you a heretic. Uh, but they don't really read their Bibles very well when they do that. And so, it, we, can say, we can say on the one hand, and we will say that, like, God saves. Like If God doesn't do it, it's not going to happen. But we can also say on the other hand, that God requires stuff from you. Right? When the gospel call goes out and it says, repent and believe, it is you who must repent and believe. And it now is that possible without God doing work beforehand? I don't believe so. We'll dive into that. But it's the same thing with sanctification. If God's not working in growing you into the image of his son, nothing you can do is going to make you more like Jesus. But that just because God has to be working doesn't mean you have no obligations. So we're going we're gonna to dive into that uh, a little bit today. And so when we, when we think about the gospel and we think about um, salvation, but the gospel in particular, we tend to think about it in, in two poles. And we're going to dive into this more in future lessons um, about the gospel is necessary for you being converted, for you repenting and believing initially, and then your final destination, getting to heaven. But what, about, what about day-to-day life? if we are only thinking about, well, you have to convert people, which we should seek to evangelize and convert people, but the only goal then is, well, one day you'll go to heaven and you just have to wait. We're missing a whole bunch of what the Bible has to say about us. And I feel like for a long time, because we don't want to slip into a works-based salvation, which is a good desire to not want to do, we just ignore all the middle. We ignore all, all the middle ground. And so Francis Schaeffer had said this about spirituality We must not think that because we have accepted Christ as Savior and therefore are Christians, that this is all there is in the Christian life. I think a lot of people, this is true. They stop right there. I have accepted Christ as my Savior, therefore I'm a Christian. That's it. And I think that's one of the main reasons why the American church is so pathetically weak uh, at this current moment. Uh, him again. We do not come to true spirituality or true Christian life merely by, by keeping a list, but neither do we come to it by merely rejecting the list and then shrugging our shoulders and living a looser life. So this is kind of the, the, the two ditches here that we often face in Christianity. That we have to guard against a lawlessness. That we're just going to live a looser life. Jesus will forgive me anyways. The gospel is enough. Versus, well, I have to come up with all of these extra rules to make sure that I never offend God. Right? Those are the two ditches that, that we have to avoid as Christians. And so the Christian life, is something else he's, he's getting at here, is that in the Christian life, there are both negative commands. Don't, do not do this. And positive commands, do this or be this. So when you look at things like um, like the Ten Commandments, the second half in particular, you know, don't lie, don't steal, don't murder, don't covet. Sometimes we, we reduce the Christian life to only the list of don'ts. But there's a lot of other passages in the Bible where it says, be generous, be forgiving, be kind-hearted, be loving. It's not just a list of Don't do this. There's always the opposite side of that equation. So much so that when we talk about things like sin, sin is is almost always, and maybe always, built off of a good or natural desire that becomes perverted. God created everything. He declared it very good. When we have desires for things that are in and of themselves good, but we want them wrong or we distort them and and we use them wrong. So the Bible isn't just don't do this. God is not just a cosmic killjoy, a list of don'ts. It's don't do it this way. Instead, do it that way. And I think uh, Galatians 2.20 is helpful to us here on filling in this, this gap. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me And gave himself for me. So when we get deeper into this this study, we're going to be looking at what does this mean? That I've been crucified with Christ, and it is he who is living inside of me. That the life I live isn't just I repented and I'm and I'm waiting for heaven. That the actual life force, direction of how I live, is Jesus is in me. He's active in me. He lives in us now. And he leads us to live that life of faith. In order to get to that point, right, we have to know the foundations in theology. What Christ has done, so that we can apply them to our lives. Practical living. So that. Therefore. So, very famously, um, the, the book of Ephesians, which I have my Bible open to right now. The book of Ephesians is the uh, first three chapters. This is what God has done. The last three chapters, therefore, do this. Therefore, live this way. Like theology is meant to be integrated into your life. So if you, uh, the book, How People Change by, by Lane and Tripp is a seminal work in what would, be, in the movement that would be called the biblical counseling movement. Now, since it's Genesis, it's it's been a, a good force, and as it grows like any movement, there are now troubling elements within it. Uh, I don't want to spend too much too much time on that. But what biblical counseling really is is bridging the gap between theology and life. That sometimes theologians get so caught up in their academic towers and, that they don't realize that God has given us truth for life, for now. And honestly, as a guy who, as you know, majors in, in worldview, there's a significant amount of overlap between biblical counseling and worldview. And, and we'll, we'll unpack that more as we go. So tonight, I want to I wanna walk through the nature of salvation. This is going to be drinking from a, from a fire hose, and we're going to talk about what God has done. A lot of this is going to be review for you, but we have to build the foundation before we start talking about salvation. Um, the specifics of sanctification. Any questions before we jump in? No? All right. We're going to go. Yeah. Hour. Location. One hour. I'm going, to I'm, have to to the I'm going to try. I'm going to try. Yeah, it'll be about an hour. The, the goal is to be done at 7.30. Otherwise, the barbarians in the gym are going to be set loose upon us. Alright, the nature of salvation. Alright, so this is what we're... There's a lot going on when we talk about the doctrine of salvation. And what we're going to kind of look at tonight is what Christ has accomplished for us, how He accomplished it, and then how it is applied to us. And even in all of this, and I'm going to give you a lot of information, I could have given you more. And there could be more categories we could talk about. But we're, we're, going, to, we're going to zoom in on some, some basics here tonight. So we're going to start with what Christ has accomplished for us. We're going to talk about Four main things. All right, adoption, justification, sanctification, and glorification. You guys pretty familiar with those terms? Yeah? Alright, good, because we're going to try to cover them quickly. What Christ has accomplished for us, beginning with adoption. Adoption is the act of God as He makes us members of His family. Like it's, it should be striking to us, that throughout the New Testament, that we are referred to as children of God. That we are now identified as being in his family and even his firstborn, that we are inheritors of the promises of God and being members of his family. In the act of adoption, we are objectively moved from being, Ephesians chapter 2, sons of disobedience, who are outside of God's family, to being his children who are full heirs. Galatians 3 uh, uh, 23-26 and also later on in Ephesians 2 as well. That we are now considered children of God. Instead of sons of disobedience, we have been adopted into his family. And without the uh, work of Christ in this to make this this plain, uh, we would remain children of wrath. Like our natural state after the fall is that we are children of Wrath. That we are by nature and by choice sinners. But now we have become, according to the promise, which is given through faith, God's children. And we inherit the promises. So instead of getting curses, we are now the children of God. And so there's a very real sense in which the Bible speaks, um, get myself in trouble on a Wednesday night. All humans are not the children of God. The biblical storyline is a large story between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And the seed of the serpent um, are those who are unregenerate, those who are not believers. And then there's the seed of the woman who are the children of God. And so the world is is divided in that line. You're children of Satan. You are, as Jesus says to the Pharisee, a brood of vipers, descendants of the serpent. Uh, Your father is Satan, not Abraham. Or you are children of God. Next, uh, any questions on adoption? You are now legally uh, God's children. Another thing Christ accomplished for us is the doctrine of of justification. Now justification, classically defined here, is the instantaneous legal act of God that happens at the moment of conversion. Okay, okay. it's a legal act. A legal act of what? It contains two parts. What is God doing when He justifies us he first he declares us innocent from all our sins so the moment Levi believed God looked at me and said you're innocent he rendered a verdict you're innocent and then on the other side of that not just innocent but you're actually righteous it's not just moving to the status of being neutral a neutral party but you are righteous Your sins are removed from you and you are given a righteousness from Christ. I mean, in short, God forgives you of your sins. And this is a one-time act. Like, like God declares it, you're justified. Now, even in that, there's, there's tension because there's still the judgment day and God will look at you again and confirm uh, his judgment. But this is a, a one-time act. Like God has the authority to say this and he has said to every believer, you're justified. You're innocent. You are righteous in my sight. Another thing Christ has accomplished for us is sanctification. What is sanctification? Well, it is a progressive work of God as an individual grows in personal holiness. So note the difference between the two justification, one time act. God says you are justified. Sanctification is literally a work that goes throughout your lifetime, from the moment you believe to the moment you go to be uh, with the Lord. Jesus describes um, a bit of this in John uh, chapter 8, when he is calling the Pharisees, or the Jews at that time, sons of, of the devil. He speaks about sin, and he says that before being converted, that we are slaves to sin. And so we'll dive into a little bit of Reformed theology here. and The doctrine of uh, total depravity does not mean that you're as bad as you can possibly be. Total depravity means that there's no aspect of you that is not impacted by sin. That is not depraved. Your mind, your will, your heart, your body, all of it is impacted uh, by sin. And what Jesus gets at here is that when we sin, we are actually in bondage to that sin. And then he says, But the Son can set you free, and you will be indeed uh, free indeed. And that, uh, this is like, well, what, is, what does Jesus mean by that? What kind of freedom uh, does the Christian have right now? Does the Christian become perfect in his personal holiness? If you have any amount of experience with fellow believers, you know the answer to that is no. You're not perfect. Uh, so what is he talking about? I think what, he, what, we, what we mean by this is you are now in a way that unbelievers are not. You are free to not sin. Like, unbelievers sin. That's all they do. You now have the ability in certain circumstances to actually not sin. Sometimes the Reformed community focuses so much on total depravity that we forget that there is Um, let let me rephrase this, that the grace of God through Jesus Christ is greater than total depravity. That's part of the the good news. Now, we are also hemmed in here to know that you will not be perfect in this life, but you don't have to sin. You don't have to keep being angry. You don't have to keep lusting. You don't have to do these things because you have been set free by the Son. And so what we have described for us in the New Testament, especially in Ephesians chapter 3, is that every Christian who exists has a battle going on in their hearts between the old self, which is marked by our sin, and the new self, which is being made in the image of Christ. So every Christian who has ever lived has an old nature, an old sinful nature that wants to sin, and a new nature that hates that old nature, and wants to obey God, and the process of sanctification described here in Ephesians three, and also in, in the book of Colossians, or in Romans chapter twelve, is this process of putting off that old self and putting on the new, or by renewing your mind and transforming it through the truth. To put it a different way, uh, anybody who um, has done any any type of diet knows that the more you eat. A type of food, the more you desire it. I was just having this discussion with Emily that I need to stop eating sugar because I really like it. <laughs> and the more I eat of it, the more I want it. Like my body starts to, to crave it. Like I see that Dr. Pepper on the shelf and I'm like, oh, i got to have it. I know it's terrible for me. Um, but it tastes so good. Twenty-three flavors <laughs> of goodness. Uh, Right? And it's the same thing with your old self and your new self. This is why you're commanded to put off the old because the more you give in to your sin, the more you're feeding that appetite. Right? The more you bring to life or vivify, as the old Christians would say, bring to life the new self, the more that appetite grows. And this is the process of, of sanctification is killing this self and bringing to life uh, that self by, by grace. Another thing that Christ accomplished for us is uh, glorification, which is a not-yet reality. Uh, At the resurrection, a believer is transformed into the perfect image of Christ. The uh, process of sanctification ends and the believer is made perfect in holiness and purity due to the work of Christ. And so we have to remember glorification here because in the process of sanctification, if you were drawing like a bar graph, it would be up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down. But the general trajectory towards more holiness. But when you hit one of those valleys, it can get really um, discouraging. You can feel like you're going to give up. But the, the promise of glorification is there. Like sanctification, God will sanctify you. And he wins in the end. You will be glorified. You do not need to lose hope. And so glorification is really the, that final step in the process of salvation, and it brings an end to the process of sanctification and an initiation into the eternal state of blessing. So this is uh, what Christ has accomplished for us. These are many of the, uh, the facets of his work on the blood or on the cross. And these, again, I want to state for you that he accomplished these for us. Like you have parts to play in this. Like you have to believe, uh, you have to put off, you have to do these things. But these are realities that Christ has accomplished for his people. Uh, any questions on those four? Jim. Mm hmm. Um, a, a one time deal like justification? Yeah, and by one time too, I don't mean that there's no impact for the rest of time. Like, it's a change in status, but that status is ongoing. If that makes sense. perseverance is the process of it really should be preservation of the saints uh, it's, it's, it's the process in which God keeps you right all, all of these parts go together right you're looking at a diamond that has different facets but it's one diamond that is salvation and the perseverance is that God by his grace and by his spirit keeps you right and part of the way he keeps you is through sanctification, justification, adoption etc. does that make sense? But that doesn't mean you have nothing to do with it. Just like, just like repenting and believing and, and uh, sanctification. God is the foundation. God is the base that accomplishes it. All right, so now we ask the question, how, does, how did Jesus accomplish this? And This should sound very familiar. I'm going to try to go through it quickly so I can be done on the hour mark. All right, God the Son took upon himself a full human nature. He is fully God or truly God and and truly man. And he did this for for many reasons, but the chief is that he had to be one of us in order to die for us. To stand in our place, he had to be a representative of the human race. Uh, The second Adam we'll get to in a a little bit. But in, in taking upon himself a true humanity, though, Jesus never sinned. He was sinless. This is important because if Jesus had sinned, he would have had to die for his own sins. Satan, takes him, or Satan meets him in the wilderness to try to throw him off of his mission. If he had given into the temptation of, of Satan, God's plan would have been ruined. Jesus also accomplished this because he is God. He is truly God. In order to save man, Jesus also had to be more than you or me. His sacrifice had to be perfect and of exceeding worth. Let's just say for a thought experiment that I was born sinless and I never sinned. And I said to God, hey, I want to offer my life for someone. What's my life worth? One of you? Maybe two? Probably not two. Just one? Jesus is the infinitely holy one. God the Son in the flesh. He offered his life as a sacrifice for many. Not just for some. And as God, uh, death had no power over him. Death could not hold him. He broke the chains of death. I mean, he he stands before Lazarus' tomb and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. I hold power over these things. So he's able to do this because of who he is. He is the God-man. He also accomplished this because he obeyed perfectly. God has since the beginning, since he spoke to Adam, he was seeking a faithful, obedient covenant partner. And so he places Adam in a perfect garden and he says, do this, don't do that. Adam breaks the covenant. He says to Abraham, walk before me, do these things, and I will give you all of these promises. Abraham sins. He says to Israel at Mount Sinai, right? Like, do all of these things and I'm going to give you all of these promises. If you don't, I'm going to give you all these curses. And Israel sins. He says to David, hey David, I'm going to raise up uh, your house here and uh, walk before me and do these things. And then a few chapters later, David falls into sin with Bathsheba. And the prophets pick this up and the prophets talk about it. God's looking for a faithful covenant partner. So they start to prophesy about this Messiah who will be that faithful covenant partner. How is God going to be in relationship with man when man can't obey and keep the covenant? Well, God becomes man to keep the covenant on man's behalf. Christ came and obeyed God. He obeyed the law and he did so perfectly in our place. And in doing so, we read, he becomes the mediator of a new and better and greater covenant. And then every covenant has a high priest or a mediator, someone who stands between God and man, and the person who stands between you and God now is the God-man. He's able to do that because he did what we could not. He obeyed perfectly. And in doing this, he establishes a new human race, a new humanity. All of man was up until this point under Adam in sin after the fall, sinners by nature and choice. Now those who have repented and believed are under Christ, the new Adam. Then on the one hand, we can talk in the Genesis 1 sense that there is one human race, but in another hand, we can talk in the Romans 5 sense there are actually two human races. The race of Adam and the race of Christ. And that is the fundamental dividing line. And so in Christ, Ephesians 2, we are one new man. We have new life, even life eternal. And finally, uh, Christ does this through what is called penal substitutionary atonement. When he died upon the cross, he was, as the prophet Isaiah said, crushed for our iniquities. Penal means punishment. We have the penal justice, our penal code, which is justice. He was a substitute in that um, he stood in our place. We read in Romans 5 that the wages of sin... The penalty of sin is death. So we have all earned death. So Jesus pays for us by dying in our place. There is therefore, Romans 8.1, no condemnation left for those in Christ. Put it plainly, Jesus' payment removes God's wrath from those he died for, which is his people. And Jesus accomplished all of this in space and time. He came at the appointed time. He died in real history. He rose again on the third day before witnesses. And so when Jesus is sitting, up, or sitting upon the cross and he says things like this, it is finished. What you should be hearing him say is that he has actually accomplished your salvation. There's a lot of debate between um, Arminians and Calvinists on a lot of things. And I think the strong one of the strongest arguments Calvinists have is is this reality. When you look at Arminianism, it's really saying Jesus merely made salvation possible for you. He died for you, but you have to make it accomplished. Calvinism says, no, Jesus finished it. His death, his resurrection has secured that you will be saved, that he will lose. None uh, of his elect. Uh, any questions on on that? Open the can of worms. You can ask. You won't hurt my feelings. I promise. All right, then we're going to move on. Uh, we got two parts then on how this is applied to us. You, if you... Uh, have read our website, our essentials document. You will note uh, these points are made clear to you uh, as to where we stand as a church. How has, God accompli- or how has God applied this then to his people? First, by grace alone. Since God through Christ has accomplished salvation, you have no rightful claim to it. God does. It belongs to him. Since God through Christ has accomplished salvation, you and I cannot earn it. There's nothing you can do that makes you worthy of it. Therefore, we can only receive this as a free gift from God. When I look at myself and compare myself to an unbelieving neighbor, I should have no amount of pride in myself. That I was smarter than them, that I chose God and, and they didn't and therefore I'm, I did something better than they did. But rather I should see that for some unknown reason in the heart and plan of God he has shown mercy to somebody who did not deserve it. And he chose to save me. It's a free gift of God by grace. But by grace alone is, this is applied to us through faith alone. All right, Ephesians 2.8 all right, faith is the gift of God. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. One of those puzzling verses that you memorize in Awana, everybody knows, that you're so familiar with that you just take it for granted. Uh, but, I mean, just peel us back a little bit. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And Paul, just so you, you, you don't mess this up, This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Even though you are the one who has the faith, even though you are the one who has to believe, he wants you to, to really understand this. It's not your own doing. Even your faith is a gift from God. A gift that you do. And so faith is not primarily a work that we do. It is a divinely empowered trusting of God through the work of Christ for your salvation. This faith is then directed in Christ alone. By grace, alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I'm going to start singing Phil's song. Our faith has to have the correct object. You can't just have a blind faith in faith. Well, I believe. I believe things are going to get better. Okay, Why do you believe things are going to get better? This has to be not just some random Jesus. There are Again, as, as Schaefer pointed out, there are a million different Jesuses out there. If you talk to somebody and they say, I believe in Jesus, sometimes I just get suspicious. <laughs> Which one are you talking about? The, the Christ of Scripture? Then, then we're on the same, same page here. How then this is applied to us, might as well finish this off, glory to God alone. Because salvation is wholly dependent on God, all glory goes to Him. It is he alone who saves. It is he alone who deserves the praise. So those are four of the five uh, alones or solas of the Reformation. The other being Scripture alone. Scripture alone is the authority, chief authority of the church and the world. How, uh, how this is applied to us then too? This is applied to us through regeneration. Right, regeneration is the instantaneous, supernatural change of a person who passes from death to life. In evangelical shorthand, it means being born again. Regenerate. To be born again. John chapter 3. Nicodemus uh, comes to Jesus in the night. And Jesus says, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you're going to have to be born again. Again. And Nicodemus says, what are you talking about? I can't go back inside my mom's stomach. And Jesus says, you're the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things. And the uh, what's, what's the phrase, Ardell? The double entendre? Double meaning? Yeah, am I right there? I'm going to become a grammar nerd. Yes. It's going to be great. Um, when the, from a, for, to be born again, if you look in your footnotes in your Bible, it will often say, or it could mean born from above. It means both. It's intentional. There's an intentional double meaning there. Like You are born again, born from above. And how does this happen? Jesus says it happens by the Spirit. The Spirit blows wherever it wishes. You cannot control it. But just like the wind blows and you can see the leaves rustling, you can see where the Spirit has gone. Like when you see somebody who used to be one way and is now another way, you haven't seen the Spirit, but you have seen the Spirit. You've seen what he's, what he's done. This, this can't be explained. These, these, this change is, is, is weird. Uh, I've been a pastor now for 10 years, and I can tell you something, that uh, logic won't change people's minds. Putting together the best argument, being really eloquent, won't change people's minds. Even people who profess to be Christian, like when I see actual repentance from people, it blows my mind because it is supernatural. We don't naturally want to do that. When you see your child actually repent or your husband or your wife actually repent, praise God. Because the Spirit's there. The Spirit's working. These things natural man does not do. And so regeneration uh, makes repentance and faith possible and inevitable. If you are dead... We're going back to Ephesians 2. You are dead in your trespasses and your sins. What can dead men do? What could Lazarus do when he was in the tomb and Jesus was standing outside of it? Nothing. He's dead. Right? But the regeneration, being born again, Jesus says, Lazarus, come out. And Lazarus was given new life, and he himself did come out, but could he do anything else but obey the command of Jesus at that moment? No. It's... The same thing, regeneration makes repentance and faith possible. You are born again with a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone, and it makes it inevitable. You will. This is a necessary consequence of being born again. And this, as I've already said, comes from the Holy Spirit and the preaching of the gospel. How will they have faith if no one preaches? The answer is they won't. So as the word is declared, the Holy Spirit goes with it and imparts life. And so repentance and faith is how it is applied to us. They are, as I said, a necessary consequence of regeneration. And, but what are they? Repentance is a turning from sin, or is a change of direction in your life. It's you were going this way, you're now going this way. Right. It includes a sincere and heartfelt sorrow and conviction over your sin, calling it what it is, and it always brings with it true rep- repentance. Always brings with it faith, following after and trusting God. What do I mean by this? Um, the uh, the analogy that's generally used is if you have a quarter, right? It has a heads and a tails. It's one quarter, but there's two sides of the coin. Right? Repentance and faith are the same way. To repent is to turn from your sin. And in order to turn from your sin, you can only turn one direction, in faith, to Jesus. To have faith is to have repentance. To have repentance is to have faith. You can distinguish them, but you can't separate them. They, they come together. And so faith involves your mind, it involves your emotions, it involves your will, really the totality of yourself. And repentance and faith are meant to mark and continue throughout your entire life and the hinge of all of this i really feel like is this this last one of how it's applied to us it's that you are uh, united with christ if you have ever read your new testament you're reading a book uh, you should note especially in the epistles how much uh, the apostles talk about us being in christ in christ Believers are unified to him by grace through faith. And in that, in their union with Christ, they receive all the blessings of salvation. Right? To be in the Christ is to be in the Spirit. And so we have this, this unity. And when you think about Ardell going through First uh, Corinthians, the idea that you are the body of Christ. How is that possible? Because you are unified with him. You are one with him. In Christ, um, we have already, we symbolize this in our baptism, died and rose again. Because you are one with him. How is that God's judgment has passed over you? Because you are in Christ and God's judgment has fallen upon Christ. This is why you are... um, you will receive the inheritance of Christ because you are one with him. I mean, Ephesians even talks about that you are seated at the right hand of God in Christ. Like right now in the heavenlies, God's people are seated at the right hand of God. Why? Because you're one with Jesus. If you're not one with Jesus, you don't get any of the benefits of Jesus. If you are one with Jesus, you get all of them because you are one with him. And so this should lead us to this uh, focusing in on justification. The reformers taught, rightfully so, that uh, justification is the doctrine by which the church stands or falls. It is the key uh, to everything that follows in the doctrine of salvation. So much so that often when evangelicals talk about salvation, they're only really talking about justification. Right? They're only... They're only Saying, well, you have to be, this is how you are justified. You can't do anything to be justified. And you're like, well, yeah, that's true, but that doesn't mean that God doesn't require things of you. So without, to put this plainly, without justification, sanctification and glorific- glorification are impossible. Like if God doesn't justify you, he won't sanctify you, and you won't be glorified. This is the ground from which everything flows. And so what actually happens um, in justification are these uh, four things. That you are legally declared righteous in God's sight. Your sin is given to Christ because you are one with Him. Jesus gives you His perfect righteousness. And this guarantees that sanctification and glorification will happen. I'm getting to this point for one very specific reason that as we look at a practical guide to how to grow in personal holiness. You can't do that if you're not justified. But if you are justified you can. You will and you should. I've heard this uh, complaint from many people in the Reformed quarters, and I'm one of those people in the Reformed quarters, or I should say people critiquing my theological camp, and I think they've got a point, is that we tend to focus so much on sin and total depravity, and we do that because a lot of the church ignores it. But we don't ever talk about the power of the Spirit, not in the charismatic, weird way, but the power of the Spirit at work within you to transform you. What God has justified, he will sanctify, he will glorify. God works in his people. And the God who is at work in you is more powerful than your sin. But nothing you do can make you justify. Because that's where we get on the other side of this equation. Well, people will look at things like this and say, look, this is works-based righteousness. This is works-based salvation. No, it's not. This is biblical Christianity. And so we have these, these pitfalls uh, to, to avoid here. I'm going to skip over some of these. Uh, one of the major ones here is pitting justification and sanctification against each other. Right? That's, that's that movement that says, well, you, it's really the, the law gospel movement that law is bad and, and gospel is good and all the commands are only there to show you how bad you are. That's one function of all the commands. The other functions of the commands are that by grace through the Spirit you would obey them. That you would be transformed. Like coming out of seminary I was very much leading a little bit more into that camp and then the more and more I taught the Bible especially the New Testament I'm like you can't get away from all of the commands all over the place. Did Paul just waste half of his letter in Ephesians? We should just rip it out. No, they're there for a reason and it's not they are given before the gospel presentation in the book it's given after. This is how you should be living. Uh, the other problem you should avoid is the blending of the two that by me sanctifying myself or growing in holiness, I am actually making myself acceptable before God. I'm justifying myself before God. Right? Your justification is a objective, fact rooted in someone else's righteousness Christ uh, we have the very uh, bad movement also to avoid that John MacArthur has spent a lot of time in his ministry critiquing he calls a Christianity light great tasting less filling as he puts it it's the idea that once saved I'm always saved means really that I can live however I want Or you could call this the uh, lordship salvation debates that went on. Jesus was my savior, but he wasn't my lord. That somehow you could be saved by Jesus, but not treat him as lord. Well, uh, you won't find that distinction in the New Testament or the Bible anywhere. Um, Also then, we're talking about sanctification. Another pitfall to avoid is that when we get to sanctification, we could treat sanctification as if God's grace has nothing to do with it, and that really what I just need is more willpower. Really just what I need is to pull myself up a little bit more uh, from, the, from my bootstraps. On the reverse side of that is ignoring that I'm still called to act. Like we are literally called in the New Testament to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. To discipline ourselves unto godliness. So what I want you to, to get here is that grace and effort and intentionality are not at war with one another. They actually should go together. And so, uh, road analogy here. The pitfalls we should avoid as Christians when we talk about sanctification is the libertine versus the legalism, the two sides of the road. The libertine is, I can live however I want. God has saved me, I can therefore do whatever I want He will forgive me. The laws don't matter. God's rules don't really matter. Blah, blah, blah. You have to ignore a lot of Scripture to get there. The other side of the equation can feel more holy. And and many a doctrinally faithful church in many other ways falls into this ditch where, well, if the Bible says I can't do this, well, then I'm going to build even more guardrails to make sure I never get close to that. That's what the Pharisees did i got all these extra extra rules, and if other Christians don't do it, those rules, they're probably not Christians. Now to be sure, if you have a specific sin bent, it would be wise for you to maybe build some barriers against that sin bent. But that doesn't mean every Christian has to do uh, what you have done. So those are the two, the two ditches to avoid. And so, with that, I can turn the fire hose off and open it to any questions. So next time we meet, the goal is to 30 minutes of me talking, 30 minutes of discussion questions based on chapters 1 and 2. Yeah. About the need to make your Thank you for listening to this message from Christ Bible Church. Remember, this world is dripping with meaning, because Christ created it, he sustains it, and he is reconciling it all to himself. Now go and live out that glorious truth.